The following KOPN podcast is made possible by the generous donations of listeners like you. Please consider a donation to listener-supported community radio, KOPN. You can donate securely on our website at kopn.org. Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture, and find food truth. And today, I'm honored to welcome my guest, Mr. Andrew Fisher. He has worked in the anti-hunger field for 25 years plus as the executive director of national and local food groups, as a researcher, organizer, policy advocate, and coalition builder. He has led successful efforts to gain passage of multiple pieces of federal food and nutrition legislation. I had the pleasure of meeting Andy during our Food and Society Policy Fellowship, and I am delighted to speak with him today about his new and critically important book titled Big Hunger, The Unholy Alliance Between Corporate America and Anti-Hunger Groups. Welcome, Andy. Thanks for having me, Melinda. I appreciate it. I greatly appreciate this book, and for me, what it is is both an expose and a visionary roadmap that really only one such as yourself who has worked in this area for so long can speak to honestly. So what I want to know is, first of all, what compelled you to write this book? Great question. I was inside, I was kind of at the intersection of public health, anti-hunger work, and sustainable agriculture and food systems for a long time as director of the Community Food Security Coalition, which was the primary national alliance of groups working on local food and food access issues. I did that from about 94 to 2011. And during that time, I worked on numerous farm bills, worked on child nutrition advocacy, and it was part of the National Anti-Hunger Organization, which was kind of the main grouping of large anti-hunger groups in the country. And I came to a number of realizations. First of all, there was a, you know, I was promoting, I was promoting anti-hunger groups to take a more prevention orientation, to be focused more on health, to be focused more on sustainability, about where the food was coming from that they were distributing. And I found a lot of acceptance at the local level. Food banks around the country were taking on really great projects around farming and gardening and, and things like that. But I also found a lot of reluctance at the policy level, especially among some of the larger anti-national groups who, you know, weren't being very innovative. And I saw, as my career went on, I saw that the work that we were trying to promote uh, in that more innovative approach was being blocked by them. And it was also, and part of what was blocking it was their, their ties to big agriculture and to big food. I uh, went to a number of different national conferences and saw Walmart on the stage with other anti-hunger leaders as a, as you know, being championed as uh, as a solution to hunger issues around the country. When in fact, they're one of the primary causes of the problem. So I realized that there was a fundamental problem with the way we're addressing hunger. Uh, the income inequality was going up, diabetes and obesity was going up, and our approach was just not working. So I decided that uh, after I left my old job that I didn't have anyone, I didn't have anything left to lose, if you will. I, I could say what I needed to. I could call out the fact that there was an elephant in the room and speak the truth about what a lot of people were telling me. This isn't just 
my analysis or my words, this is a ref- the book's a reflection of, of hundreds of people mm-hmm. around the country who have told me their stories. You've got amazing stories in the book and terrific interviews with people who are enlightened as well about the problem. Before I tell you my own stories of enlightenment about hunger, I would like to know who you want to read this book. Wow. Well, first and foremost, I love groups. Uh, I like individuals who work with anti-hunger uh, in the anti-hunger field, whether they're at a food bank, an advocacy organization, whether they're volunteering at a food pantry, you know, or even more generally, whether they care about the issue and, and are donating. I'd like people in the public health community, in the labor community, in the food community to be reading the book as well, uh, because it touches upon all those issues and it, it touches upon the intersection of those issues that they care about and what they're working towards and how we address hunger. Mm-hmm. I would like my legislators to read this book, as well as my colleagues in dietetics. We work with such noble intentions, don't we? And yet we don't know necessarily who is pulling the strings that create the problems. So this book is so valuable for from all of those perspectives. Now, I had a revelation about hunger many years ago when I was working, not working, but I was a volunteer on a committee about hunger in my own state. And one of the the group members said to me, you know, food stamps are really incentives or they provide a subsidy, a subsidy for corporations and businesses that don't pay a living wage. And believe it or not, you know, I was a dietitian already for probably a decade, but it was the first time I ever thought about how our hunger relief and our charity systems are set up, and your book delves into that. Tell me about why you think people are hungry in the world's richest nation. You know, it's, people are hungry in the U.S. not because there's a lack of food. Uh, there's more than enough calories produced in our food system, and go to the supermarket, you will see no shortage of food, whether it's healthy or unhealthy. People are food insecure, which is kind of the the more scientific term that explains the phenomenon here in the U.S., because fundamentally they don't have access to the resources to acquire that food, whether those resources are a good salary or access to government benefits, or they may just be that they don't have access to a grocery store in their neighborhood, and that causes them an inconvenience and causes them and do costs in getting to a supermarket. But first and foremost, it, re- it really is about, you know, f- hunger is a symptom of poverty. Mm-hmm. Um, and hunger is downstream from kind of broader social inequities. So if we, if we address poverty, if we address all the issues that surround poverty and that cause poverty to happen, whether they're racism or sexism, then, you know, we're gonna, we're going to reduce food insecurity in this country. Now, with all of the food banking networks and food pantries and individuals who truly care about hungry Americans, even global hunger, what is preventing us from working on the root cause of poverty, or the root cause of hunger or therefore poverty? Sure. You know, it's a lot easier and a lot simpler it's a lot more politically sanitized to focus on hunger than it is to focus on poverty. There was a clear decision back in the 1960s among activists to focus on 
on hunger instead of poverty because they felt that hunger, they felt like that poverty was a broken brand. It was harder to move the needle in this country on poverty because people have this conception of uh, if you're poor, that means you must have done something wrong in your life. Maybe you deserve to be poor. Maybe you're immoral or lazy or made bad decisions. But there is no, it's universally immorally, it's, it's universally considered in the U.S., that hunger is immoral. Nobody deserves to be hungry. It's kind of the general conception uh, in the country. And that's changing a little bit. But for the most part, uh, hunger is a lot easier to gain public support for than, than poverty. Poverty is a lot more complicated. And then, you know, hunger, uh, the, part of the problem with hunger is that when I say hunger, you probably think the solution is food which allows us to enter into kind of this social service model instead of a social change model. We don't, you don't necessarily think, oh, well, the paradigm then is we need to change, we need to give people political power so that they can get the access to the resources that they need, whether that's increasing the minimum wage or, or strengthening the safety net. If you think that the solution is food, then you're going to think probably that, you know, what we need to do is charity. Uh, and charity is, allows the public to enter in in a much more easy kind of way to address the problem through a food drive, through you know through a food driver donating to their food bank, um, as kind of the real common ways, but it also allows corporations to come in to be donors to food banks to come off as solving the hunger problem on one level by donating excess food to food pantries and the food banks or by donating money to the same. When indeed it's their own core business practices that are perhaps causing the problem in the first place through inadequate wages and exploitative labor practices. Mm-hmm. And you have many examples of those in the book. And I guess I'm going to pull one example out, and that is Walmart. Walmart's so, the easiest and most egregious example. Exactly. So you were speaking, I believe, this is published by the MIT Press, and you were giving a talk, and I happened to watch it online, and I read that, or I, I heard you say that Walmart takes in $14 billion in food stamps. So when I hear that kind of statistic, I think, okay, food stamps are SNAP, the Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program, as it is now called, that to me is my tax dollars going to back to Walmart when Walmart isn't providing a living wage. They have improved their wages, and you talk about how that happened with not a labor union, but, but labor organizing of some sort. But ultimately, they're the winners at the end of the day, aren't they? Right. You know, Walmart is essentially not only double-dipping, it's pretty much triple-dipping. So the way it works is that Walmart doesn't pay its workers a living wage. It's raised its minimum wage now to 9 to $10 an hour. Mm-hmm. So, you know, that's not enough for people to live on, especially when they only get part-time, in which Walmart manipulates their schedule so people don't get uh, good fringe benefits. So then, so what do, what do where Walmart's workers do? They recur to food stamps or to food banks, which Walmart promotes them to do and their anti-hunger funders promote them to do. Walmart then realizes that those labor practices are causing them grief and making it hard for them to enter into into the urban markets. So places like Seattle, Boston, Chicago, New York, uh, Los Angeles, they've been shut off from those markets because labor is opposed to them coming in because of their exploitative practices. So they donate a lot of money 
they put two billion dollars or two and a half billion dollars into anti-hunger causes from the from 2010 to 2015, which is kind of a drop in the bucket to really what their overall sales are. So most of that, those donations come in the shape of food, but so they're, they're, that money goes to support food banks and goes to support organizations working on food stamps. So Walmart is supporting those efforts that are helping it pay a lower wage than it should be. Uh, a study back in 2014 by a U.S. committee, by a committee in the U.S. House of Representatives, found that Walmart's labor practices are costing taxpayers $6.2 billion in public benefits and things like SNAP and Medicaid. So we as taxpayers are subsidizing Walmart's profits by $6 billion a year so it can continue to pay low wages. And then, as you mentioned, Walmart then goes, turns around and sells its products to its workers and to others who are on food stamps and is the largest redeemer of food stamps in the country. So Walmart is making out like a bandit in all those ways. And then on top of it, it's getting kind of what we call the halo effect. It's getting a lot of positive press from from the media for all of its wonderful donations that it's making. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And you have a section here describing some of the workers organizing to change the situation. But I think what was such a staggering comment in this book was an internal memo that you describe from a Walmart executive to the board of directors, which spelled out the Walmart approach, hold down spending on health care and other benefits, cap employee pay, discourage unhealthy people from applying, and disparage people with seniority who make more money but are no more productive. And then you also report one of the employees who says that when he was promoted to management, he was told not to treat workers with respect as it would empower them. There are a lot of hard things to read in your book, Andy, but that was one of the worst because in addition to the loss of dignity one feels when one has to get their food from a food pantry is the way the system keeps people unempowered. And that just goes against every part of what I perceive to be as as, a, as being an American citizen. Yeah, I mean it's it's shocking. It's you know Walmart's practices in and of themselves are shocking. But what I guess what spurred me to write this book, and I think what the lessons are, is that the anti-hunger community is deeply in bed with Walmart. It defers to Walmart in many different ways. Uh, no. Food Bank, for example, accompanied strikers at the Black Friday protests in Walmart. No anti-hunger organization has spoken up against Walmart's labor practices. In Washington, D.C., about five years ago, the city council passed legislation that would condition Walmart's entering in building a new store in the, in the district on it paying its workers $12.50 an hour. Not exactly a living wage. Right. But, you know, better than minimum wage. That the legislation passed, the, the bill passed through the city council. Unfortunately, the mayor vetoed it. But there are two major organizations in D.C. that anti-hunger groups, and they both received substantial amounts of money from Walmart, and neither of them spoke out in favor of that bill, even though that bill would clearly reduce food insecurity among Walmart workers, among the poor in, in D.C. So there's there's an increasing I don't know if you want to, you can call it sins of omission if you, if you want to be gentle about it or if you want to be a little bit more cynical about it. One could call it corruption. Mm-hmm. Um, that anti-hunger groups, unfortunately, are not 
are not biting the hand that feeds them, even though even though that hand that feeds them is taken away with the other. Mm-hmm. Listeners, if you're just joining us, you're tuned into Food Sleuth Radio, where we are speaking with Mr. Andrew Fisher. He has worked for decades in the anti-hunger field, and he is the author of a critically important book titled Big Hunger, The Unholy Alliance Between Corporate America and Anti-Hunger Groups. And if you, like me, believe that America is too beautiful and wonderful to have hungry citizens, I strongly encourage you to pick up this book. I want to talk about another component that touches my heart, and that has to do with the quality of food that people eat. As a registered dietitian, of course, I am concerned about people not being hungry, but I don't want to fill their bellies with empty calories or foods or beverages that contribute to their ill health. That's part of my professional ethic. And, of course, we have safety nets in the hunger community, and one of them is what we used to call food stamp what we now call the Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program. And, of course, by design, this program was never meant to provide all of a person's food needs. It was meant to supplement. And so I am concerned about corporate America's role in limiting effectiveness in guiding what food stamps can purchase. And is it okay if I still call them food stamps? I think that's one of the more common that everybody's going to understand. Well, let's go to New York City, because you describe in the book a situation where we had a push to do a little experiment and to restrict what these SNAP benefits or what food stamps could purchase, in line with what we require of the Women, Infants, and Children's Program, another program that's designed to keep people well, and we say, You know, you can use your own money if you want to buy soft drinks, but if you want to buy eggs and milk and cheese and vegetables, that's what we want you to use these coupons with. I think I certainly come from a position where I would like to see my tax dollars helping people be better nourished. What happened in New York City and more nationally with regard to any attempts to help people eat well with the food stamp program? What happened about six or seven years ago was that uh, under Mayor Bloomberg, the New York City administration and worked with the state of New York uh, to propose a waiver to the U.S. Department of Agriculture, USDA, to change the food stamp program. And the way the system works is they can't just change the program themselves. If they want to do things differently, they have to ask USDA for a waiver of the rules. So they wanted to uh, attempt an experiment, if you will, an innovation that would disallow SNAP recipients from purchasing sugary beverages in New York City for a time period to evaluate whether that would make a difference in people's dietary consumptions and in their health status. USDA considered the waiver seriously, but ultimately decided not to grant it. And USDA has never granted a waiver along for, you know, to change the nutritional profile of, of the food stamp program. Parenthetically, there's currently a waiver under consideration by the state of Maine for a similar request to, to, to exclude soda and, I believe, candy as well. The New York City attempt was a serious scientific endeavor to really understand the health impacts of this program and, and of whether soda should be continue to be included in it. And more recently, in November, USDA came out with a study that showed that back in 2011, 
from one single supermarket chain that SNAP recipients purchased about nine to ten percent of their used about nine to ten percent of their benefits on sugar sweetened beverages. And by that term, I mean not just soda, but also energy drinks, iced teas, uh, any any beverage like that 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 is you know heavily sugared. And it estimated because there is no the the program is not transparent. We do not have national data on how. Uh, SNAP recipients use their benefits, nor where they spend them. But this was the first kind of large-scale study and found that uh, uh, you could estimate that approximately $6.5 billion of food stamp benefits back in 2011 were spent on sugary beverages, you know, which is a huge amount of money and which is more than contradicting the nutrition money, uh, the nutrition education funds that the government spends to promote healthy eating among the public. Uh, mm-hmm. So we're doing, you know, our policies are not coherent or consistent in any any way. On one hand, we're encouraging people not to be drinking soda. On the other hand, we're giving them benefits that allow them to do so. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there's a very, you know, it's it's a very earnest and very serious discussion about whether SNAP recipients should be able to continue to to be able to purchase soda within the food stamp program. And you know, I think it, you know, both sides have something to learn from each other, but. I think that ultimately the status quo doesn't benefit anybody except big soda. Exactly. Um, and, and that's why it needs to change. Yeah. Uh, and, and it needs to change in a way that honors people's dignity and their ability to make good choices, but it also needs to change in a way that promotes people's health. Well, it's interesting that word choice is so fascinating to me because it's often used. For example, I, I remember we wanted to take uh, tobacco out of restaurants and bars and the the opposition said no people need to have a choice and i'm hearing that same sentiment it's like no people need to have a choice if they want to buy soda but what that also says to me is that my tax dollars again are going to soft drink manufacturers rather than contributing to the health of our fellow citizens and it's interesting about choice too because it can fall the other way and you have a chapter on economic democracy through federal fund programs in which you describe food distribution on the Indian reservations where Indians the Indian Native American population was not given a choice as to whether or not they could buy butter or receive butter versus an alternative. Right. Yeah, and and, and you know that that program is called FD PIR, Food Distribution Program in Indian Reservations, uh, distributes about over $100 million of food to the poorest of the poor, uh, to those Native Americans who would qualify for food stamps, but because they don't live anywhere near a grocery store, giving them food stamps just doesn't make sense. So instead right. they get a box of commodity food, which I, you know, which is great. The quality of it has been improved dramatically over the years, but you know, it, it's a missed opportunity because most of that food is bought through big corporations, through companies like Tyson and Del Monte and, and other big corporations that USDA purchases from, and not from local indigenous producers. So there's, you know, it's a hundred, uh, again, more than a hundred million dollars of food that could be used to support Native American producers on their reservations to stimulate their economy, so that they don't need the program in the first place. And it, it's just a great example of how we need to be rethinking the way we do our food aid, essentially. You know, we spend $100 billion on food distribution, on food aid in this country when you include school lunches, WIC, SNAP, and many of the other programs, which is 15 and all. If even a a small percentage of that funding, even 10%, 20%, went to stimulate local and regional economies, 
we would have a vastly different and improved food system in this country. We would have much stronger family farm economy. We would be able to reduce poverty, generate, create more jobs, fill our tax coffers better than we do when we support companies such as Tyson, which are just blatantly exploitative of of their farmers and the, and the workers in which they operate. Mm-hmm. And you write that $100 billion spent on these federal food programs winds up in the bank accounts of big ag and big food companies, including, as you mentioned, Tyson, ConAgra, Walmart, and Pepsi. We just have a few minutes left, and I want to allow you an opportunity to bring forth anything that is burning on your plate about this book, as well as any aha moments you had or big surprises when you were putting this work together. I have to say the biggest surprise to me was when I was about, in 2013, I had been working with a journalist. His name is Steve Holt, freelance writer out of Boston, and he was doing an article for a blog that no longer exists. It's called TakePart.com. He was going to write a two-part article about food banking. He, he interviewed me. I talked a lot about who's on the board of food banks, which tend to be uh, fortune, uh, representatives of Fortune 1000 companies. That article came out. And then the second article, which was supposed to run the next day, it never came out. And I asked him why. And he said that Feeding America, which is the nation's food banking hub, had come out to, had come to his boss's boss, the editors at this, at this website, and quashed the article. They had made it clear that everything in the article was true, but they did not want this second article to run. And unfortunately, the editors made a choice not to run the article. So they essentially censored dialogue on the many challenges within the food banking system. So that, to me, is kind of indicative of the type of... That, to me, encapsulates why I wrote this book, because there has been no dialogue. There's been no public conversation about the many challenges of the way we we address hunger in this country. And so you know, the book is intended to spark that dialogue. And I am you know, doing a lot of traveling around the country, to engage communities in that conversation and would encourage folks to visit our website, which is BigHunger.org, to take a look at it, and that'll tell you more about the book and how you can access it. Well, I mentioned in the introduction that your book, to me, was both an expose and a visionary roadmap. And I really believe that when someone is so outraged by not feeding America that we do need a roadmap out, and you provide great examples of what we can all do together as fellow Americans to create a healthier food system and a healthier population. Right, and I I essentially argue that we need to take back hunger. We need to take back what is anti-hunger work. It it can't just be about giving people food, and can't just be about charity, because We've seen that that hasn't worked. The needle on food insecurity has not moved in in 20 years. We're still at the same levels as we were in 1995. So, And we're doing harm to our public dignity. We're doing harm to the dignity of the poor. We're doing harm to public health. We're doing harm to rural communities. So we need to embrace a different approach, one that is about public health, one that is about economic justice, about paying workers a fair wage, and one that is about local economies, about supporting those small and medium businesses that can generate jobs and reduce poverty, yeah. not just about supporting concentration in the food system. 
Yeah, this is about homeland security, indeed. Well, in closing, I want to thank our listeners for joining us. I want to thank my guest especially, Mr. Andrew Fisher, and remind everyone that Food Sleuth Radio is produced by Dan Hemmelgarn at KOPN Studios in beautiful downtown Columbia, Missouri. We have been speaking with Andrew Fisher, a true advocate and laborer in our work to fight hunger and poverty in America and globally. And I want to recommend his book strongly. It's titled Big Hunger, The Unholy Alliance Between Corporate America and Anti-Hunger Groups. Thank you so much for being my guest, Andy. My pleasure, Melinda. Be well. (music) 